0: We are in Romans chapter 8, if you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through this, you can see by the, the, the number at the top, uh, we're calling it the Gospel of God. And as you, as you turn there, uh, I do encourage you to uh, pray for the women on the retreat who even now are, are worshiping and then they'll... heading back, so if again, if you're visiting with us and you saw an uncommon number of little girls with crooked bows or (laughs) boys with their shirts on inside out, uh, you'll know that uh, those are ones that will be happy when their wives return home too. In Romans 8, we uh, are going to pick up with verse uh, 26. We had uh, worked our way through Romans and then just basically hit the brakes when we got to Romans 8, and we've been uh, more slowly working our way through uh, this amazing chapter. But uh, let's pick up with the 26th verse. We're building on the previous uh, statements about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, likewise... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we need to know more of you. Not just more about you, but to know you in a deeper way. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit that we just read about would work in our hearts today. That whatever's going on in our life, whatever our mind would naturally go to in these next few moments, will you cause it? to go instead to what you have to say to us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in uh, California with uh, some friends. And uh, if you've been to the ocean out there, you know they tend to have bigger waves. And so, I was standing uh, with my back to the ocean, holding court with my friends, who were, I'm sure, delighting because they saw it coming, and that was the wave that hit me, literally knocked me down into the sand, it was shallow water, knocked me down into the sand, I had on a pair of sunglasses that uh, I never did find. Fortunately, all my sunglasses come from the dollar store, so it wasn't that big of a deal. I'm sure they just floated away. Um, but I, uh, I was reminded of uh, that, and you can put that glorious scene in your, in your mind for a moment. But I want to read to you what took me back to that. And it is a stunning statement by Charles Spurgeon. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock. Of ages, Think about what you would say to that. Do you see that if you're a, a, a believer, the waves that overwhelm you are actually doing that? They are pushing you toward and, at, and, and sometimes slamming you into a rock that ultimately is the rock of ages or... Even if you're a believer, are you struggling with that? Are you overwhelmed by that? Instead of kissing the wave, are you cursing the wave that overwhelms you? When I was learning to preach, uh, one of my professors said that there are two things uh, in preaching that you don't want to avoid. And one is, don't be afraid of the obscure passages, those difficult passages. Don't be afraid of those when you come to them. Preach on them. But also, don't despise the passages that are so familiar that you may think everybody has heard this and of course, as we, uh, the the beauty of going straight through a book is that you come to both of those kinds of passages, and uh, each one has its own challenges. But today, as we look at Romans eight twenty eight and and the verses that immediately follow, that uh, Romans eight twenty eight was our verse of the year back in in twenty eleven. And so we had, uh, we memorized it, meditated on it, we had several sermons during the year it was referred to over and over again. I saw it on your refrigerators, in your cars, uh, in in various places as that verse was prominent to us. It may be the most known verse in Romans 8, which is one of the most magnificent chapters in Romans in the scripture and it may be the most comforting verse in Romans 8 but it also may be one of the most abused verses and one of the most misapplied verses in the scripture as well so if anything that just gives us all the more incentive to to take another look at it today and uh and see, first of all, with 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 verse 28, that God is working for our good. That's where we start, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, Paul had just spoken of some things that we don't know. We sometimes don't know how to pray according to God's will. Sometimes we don't even have the words to pray. Here are some things we don't know. And then on the heels of that, he says, but this, this we do know. And that is verse 28. Now I want to give you the first caution and that, that's how at least one way that this verse can be misapplied. This is not a universal principle. It is a principle for God's people and only for God's people. So if, if you are around uh, those who, who know nothing of Christ but say, well, all things work together for good, I, I wouldn't necessarily stop and correct them. That's not their biggest problem. But what we need to know is if you find yourself in that situation and, and, and you don't know Christ, don't bother uttering that statement because it doesn't apply to you. But if anything, that's that's one more glorious thing that, that God has seen fit to say, this is for you, my children, who I have adopted into my family. That whatever's going on in your life, because you are mine, it works together for, for good. Now, let's expand on this a little bit. Back to the verse. He says all things. Now, in this context, and we, we saw this earlier uh, last week and the week before, he's referring to the, to the suffering that he's just talked about. Now, Does it mean that all the the good things work together for the good? Of course. But here he is referring specifically to, he's still in that same conversation of talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and the suffering of God's people and where our help really is and where it comes from. But then he says, it works for the good. For good that's got to be defined and here's why saying that they work together for good is not the same as saying that God will give you the good life we've got to be so careful there this is not your best life now That's not what he's talking about. That's the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, and I use gospel in the small g because it's not the gospel at all. It uses some of the same words that we use. But the emphasis of that small g gospel is God wants you healthy and wealthy and everything to go well for you in this life, and if you don't have that, it's because of your lack of faith. Those who preach that gospel are warping the truth and the beauty of the true gospel. And it's endangering the souls of those who listen to them. Because the goal becomes my best life now rather than more of Christ and life with Christ now and forever. And so don't don't be confused that that's the good that it's talking about. So what is it talking about? What is the good if it's not the good life? Well, what Paul is saying is it's actually being conformed to the image of his son. And by the way, that's better than my best life now. We'll see in a minute what that whole process looks like. But let's think from Scripture of of one in particular who went through this this kind of a a, a situation. We think of Joseph. He's sold into slavery. Eventually, in Egypt, he, he rises to a place of prominence. His family, his brothers, who sold him into slavery, are are outed. They're found out. And in being held accountable, they're sorry for what went on. And this is what it says in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil. You men, you were doing an evil thing at that point. But God's purpose is much bigger than what you meant it for. He's he's, uh, showing them and showing us. Now, in spite of the suffering he'd gone through, he knew God was sovereign over his past and he saw at least some good that could come from it. Now, we don't always get to see the good that comes from from difficult things that we're going through. Sometimes we get a little bit of a glimpse. But I would suggest even when we do see some things and and sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what good is coming from this? And a lot of times we're not going to know because it may be, we may see that little glimpse and say, well, that must be it. But there may be thousands of other things that God is doing in you and in others during these difficult times. We see uh, as well uh, the sermon by Peter in Acts t- chapter 2. Listen to this balance of how this is. It says, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So do you see the balance? You have the reason he was delivered up is it's God's plan, but you killed him. So here what we see is that uh, you know, in spite of this evil, from a human perspective, how, how evil of a thing is going on, what we see is that, that God was working his purpose all along. And so here in the, the worst and most awful suffering that we, we see, there in the New Testament, we see God working salvation. And ultimately, that was his purpose in that. Horrible things that are in the plan of God for our ultimate good, for our, ult- for our ultimate salvation. So if it's not saying that God, uh, those who love God will have the good life, he is saying in the middle of suffering, difficulties, life in general, it's all for your good. Now, that makes it sound like God's some kind of a capricious God that that somehow enjoys our suffering, somehow enjoys seeing his children in pain, and don't fall into that trap either. This verse really is scripturally where the old statement, God is good all the time, comes from. So, I want you to be careful when you are praying about something and you are praying, happens to be according to God's will, and so you get the answer to prayer that you want. And then be careful making the statement God is good. Because what's the implication? You don't mean this, but what can be the implication? He's good because he did what I wanted him to. Would I have said that if I got the opposite answer? And so that's why instead, God is good all the time is is the right way to say it. I like to say God always does what's best for his children. Even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it, God always does what's best for his children. He has a purpose in all that takes place. Now, we've, we've preached through the context leading up to these verses. Let's look at the rest of the context, what, what comes next to see what that purpose is. And, and that leads us to the, the second thing, if you're following the outline, our our good has a certain end, which is good also. In other words, it's our, our life and everything in it is going somewhere. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So here's the ultimate end of what we go through here in this life to be conformed to the image of his Son. And and hopefully this verse can can show us, and, and that's the good. That's the good that he's talking about. It's showing us that we're not going through this for no reason at all. We are being changed to be more and more like Jesus. As brothers of Jesus, we should more and more be bearing the Family resemblance. Now, let me give you another clarification. I told you there were ways this is, this is misused. If you're someone who has been given to great suffering in this life, you should not assume that it's because you're far from God. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if we're talking about how suffering causes us to be more and more like Christ, and then either you're that person or you're around that person that seems to have more suffering than other people. Don't go to the place where where you're thinking, that must mean I'm so far from God that I've got to suffer more than everybody else just doesn't work that way. And by the way, that's the kind of things that that Job's counselors, who weren't good counselors, but that's the kind of thing they were saying to him. And that's not the case. It is not a direct correlation. What we know is simply that all of it has a purpose, and it is to make us more Like Jesus. Let's look at the words. For those he foreknew. Okay, here we go. It does not mean here or in the New Testament that he simply foresaw, that he simply uh, looked ahead. I want you to think about uh, some passages. Let me give you one example. Matthew 7, 23. What we have, uh, I think that's the right uh, passage, but we can look that up later. Where Jesus is is, uh, there before uh, mankind, in essence. And to some he says, I never knew you. Now that's not, that, that word know there is not just talking about a casual knowing of someone else. He's saying, because he did know them in that way, of course he knew them, they're his creation. But he's saying, I never had a relationship with you and you never had one with me. Here's the way you can remember this, and in, in the Old Testament, for instance, uh, it, and a lot of the older versions would use uh, this term when it was talking about uh, a husband and a wife knowing each other. The idea was one of intimacy, not just a casual knowing. And so... People like R.C. Sproul would say that uh, it is fair to uh, think about to foreknow, meaning to forelove. And that's where this, uh, to fit in with the next terms, that foreknowing is talking about uh, a love that is being expressed and it is an intimate relationship. And then he goes on and and uses the term predestined. There's that word. Now, when we were in Ephesians, we spent a lot of time on this. Uh, But I hope you can see that the Presbyterian Church in America didn't invent this word. And neither did Calvin or Luther or Augustine or me. This comes from the Holy Scripture. Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses it fearlessly and in the context not of controversy, not of trying to prove it, but in the context of bringing comfort because of God's sovereignty. Let me me remind you what he said over in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Then down in verse 11, in Him. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not only is all that we are going through going somewhere, moving us in a direction, and it's a good direction because it's toward the good, but... Also, God will carry us through to the end that he desires. And that needs to be our comfort as well. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these two verses, previous one and this one, is often called the the golden chain of our salvation. Uh, So, going back to uh, being uh, called and justified and glorified, but also predestinated, foreknown. Notice first, when it comes to this, when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to what's going on in our life, it's all God's doing and not ours. And that's why it's secure. So that's why he is, he's saying this to those who are suffering. He's saying, look, I want to remind you who you are in Christ and how secure you are in Christ. Christ. So that then as you face these difficult things, you know that security, that adoption in him will never change. John Newton, who was mentioned earlier, said, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. I wonder if he ever said that to Cooper. It would have been good counsel. Everything is needful that He sends; nothing can be needful that He withholds. In the previous verse, it talked about foreknew, predestined, and here we see the idea of a call. Now that you have in the in the scripture an inward and an outward call. The outward call is one that is. Uh, to be given to everyone. Uh, whenever I preach, an outward call is given. Respond to this. I don't try to figure out who's going to respond or anything like that. I can't. I don't know that. Whenever a Sunday school teacher faithfully uh, teaches the word, that's an outward call. When we obey the Great Commission, we give an outward call to people. But then Then there's the inward call, and that's the kind of call he is talking about, that inward call, and that call is always and only given by the Holy Spirit, and it is always effective. The Holy Spirit does not fail when he calls uh, one who is to be adopted into God's family. And then the, the term justified, we have talked a lot about that in, in Romans. But basically, the two parts, he pardons all of our sins and he accepts us as righteous. Our sin goes to him and his righteousness comes to us. That's justification right there. But I want us to notice the next next term, and that is glorified. This statement represents an audacious statement of faith, and here's why. Because it's in the past tense. It is so sure. So all these other things could be yeah I can see that that's done that's done that's done that's done but the idea of being glorified is not until after we die and after he returns and we have our glorified bodies but he uses the past tense it is as certain as if it had already been done because it was accomplished on the cross and and that's what we can hold on to. Now, a couple of things. This isn't just about a great new body that we'll have, although our bodies will be glorified. But what you're thinking as a glorified body may not be exactly what you will receive. We don't know a lot about it, but we do know that when Jesus was resurrected and had a glorified body, He still had his scars. Now, I believe part of that is because that was his perfect body. It achieved what he came to do. Now, here's the other thing, and it may be the best news of all of this, and that is that uh, this glorification, what it means pertaining to our sin. Let me give you a progression. We're doing some theology here. Here's the progression. Before we came to Christ, it is impossible not to sin. So over here, before Christ, everything we do is sin. When we come to Christ, as we've been talking about in Romans, we are no longer a slave to sin, and therefore it is possible not to sin. When we are glorified, it will be impossible to sin. Now that's a good thing, isn't it? That's something to look forward to. That which we struggle with so much in this life, and even though we're no longer slaves to sin, we don't have to sin, believers who are honest still struggle with it. But there will come that time when we will no longer struggle because we will be glorified and with Christ. That's how secure we are. It was accomplished on the cross. Now I want to encourage you to do this. And I'm going to leave you with two brief stories. But here's what What we need to do with this passage, with this uh, Romans 8 28, and that is apply those truths to yourself and then model them to others. Apply them to yourself and model them to others. And be careful, be sensitive. when you quote that to others. Here's what I mean. A man had lost his child. There was a long line of people to give their condolences and to try to give comfort. When a very close friend of his finally got up to him and he was sitting down he pulled him down close, and he said, if one more person quotes Romans 8.28 to me, I might punch them. You see the struggle with that? Is Romans 8.28 true in that situation? Absolutely. We need to infuse it in our life and then model it to others. Second comparison. I very vividly recall some years back when I was in Atlanta being called to a doctor's office. It was an OB. I got a call. I was in my office. One of the young women in our church who was pregnant was there for a visit and they had just told her that that baby that had been inside of her for seven months was no longer living and so they called her husband and she said will you call my pastor too and I happened to be closer in proximity And so I went over there immediately. When her husband arrived, they hadn't told him why they called him in. He didn't know exactly what it was, though I'm sure he suspected what he would be facing that moment or in the days to come. But here's what he said to me. I met him in the parking lot and walked him in. I quoted Romans 8:28 over and over and over all the way over here. Now, was that trivial? Was that escapism? No. It was God's word touching a real life in an appropriate way. So this we know. God is not surprised by what you face. And God is not helpless. And God is using this to make you more like Jesus. Peter Marshall said, Life is a series of troughs and peaks. In his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul... God relies on the troughs more than the peaks. And some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. May God grant his comfort. Let's bow together. Lord, will you so infuse this into our hearts that we are, we are not judging what kind of God you are by looking at our circumstances, but instead we are judging our circumstances by who you are. Will you teach us that and give us your comfort? We need it. In Christ's name, amen.